This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Thursday. Daphna, how's your Thursday going? <laughs> it's good. It's good. I think you're up first for questions. Let's go. Hit me. No, you're first. Oh, you I'm asking? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Fine, fine. All right, I, get, I catch a little bit of a break. So we're doing new neurology question number 23. Okay. This is, this is the kind of question that gives you palpitation just reading about it. The newborn presents with poor feeding alternating irritability, lethargy, and a high-pitched cry. Oh, no. The infant's indirect bilirubin concentration is 33 milligrams per deciliter oh, and is found no. to have opistotinous and seizures. I'm, I'm going to gloss over the fact that I pronounced it the way I pronounced it. You guys know what I'm talking about. But part of this <laughs> infant's disease, which is least likely to occur, is so they're looking for, as part of this disease that hasn't been named yet, uh -huh. Which one of those is the least likely to occur, Daphna? First, first choice is uh, a tetoid cerebral palsy. B, auditory dysfunction. C, dental enamel dysplasia. D, paralysis of upward gaze. E, severe cognitive impairment. Okay. Um, Take it away. I think that word is epistotonus. Epistotonus. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Listen. So the first time I had started studying for the boards before they were delayed by the pandemic, <laughs> I got this question wrong. And so I don't think I'll ever get this question wrong again because I thought this was a very confusing question. I yeah. thought for sure <laughs> that um, – severe cognitive impairment would be a feature of this disease process, uh, which is kernicterus. Um, and that is not true. <laughs> it is the answer to this question because it is least likely to occur. So you tell yes. us more. <laughs> yes. So that, yeah, let's, this is a loaded question. Uh, very easy to trip up on it. Mm -hmm. So the presentation of this kid with a bilirubin of 33 um, with a high-pitched cry, opistotinus, and seizures is kernicterus. Uh, kernicterus is the word that we use to describe acute bilirubin encephalopathy. It leads to um, yellow staining of the basal ganglia, cranial nerve nuclei, and the hippocampus. If you want to Google some pathology slides, it's actually mm. pretty neat to really see neat. the yellow staining of the brain. Um, like cigarette smoke <laughs> mm -hmm. like. you're right and it's and it's due to necrosis and uh, neuronal loss and gliosis of uh, these areas so it is i mean it 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 puts i think kernicterus in perspective now let's talk about kernicterus kernicterus is a disease that happens in three phases and you could have the early phase the intermediate phase and the advanced phase so in the early phase, which is sort of where this vignette is uh, describing to us, we have lethargy, hypotonia, poor suck, and high-pitched cry. 
Okay, so these are the early phase. In the intermediate phase, the baby is now irritable. The hypotonia has made made wave to hypertonia now, mm-hmm. and they have this uh, posture that's called opistotonus, which is basically really significant arching of the back. Um, and this leads to uh, a shrill cry. Um, so again, I think the cry, the descriptions of the different cries really are, are um, very scary. But anyway, finally, you can then make way to an ad- the advanced stage of Kernicterus, where you have irreversible neurological damage. Uh, hypertonia persists. We have deep stupor, comma, uh, uh, not comma, coma, seizures, and then death. So, um, so these are the three stages of, of Kernicterus. Okay, so, so for the babies who are surviving Kernicterus, they have a series of um, developmental issues um, that includes athetosis, which is uh, movement abnormalities. They have gaze issues where they have uh, paralysis of their upward gaze. Mm-hmm. They have hearing impairment. They have dental enamel dysplasia. And as you said, um, cognitive delay is very, very rare. It doesn't include cognitive delay. Um, So the way I remember this is with a mnemonic that I made. So I use the uh, acronym TEAM, T-E-A-M, like a team. And I'm thinking about it. The way I remember it is that Kernicterus, if a baby starts off with like hyperbilirubinemia, you can manage it, but if it progresses to connectorus, you're going to need a team to help you treat it. Mm. And and the team stands for T is teeth, so they have these dental enamel dysplasia. The E stands for eyes with paralysis of the upward gaze. The A stands for audio, so they have hearing uh, impairment. And the M stands for movement disorder, so like they have the athetosis. And so that's how I remember the long-term complications of connectorus. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? Because um pathophysiologically it it occurs in the basal ganglia right. where we have a lot of coordination of movement but less so cognitive function so mm-hmm. so i won't i won't forget <laughs> no all right question 28 intraventricular hemorrhage occurs in preterm infants because a Birth trauma precipitates bleeding from the germinal matrix. B, platelets are dysfunctional in preterm infants, prompting intraventricular bleeding. C, preterm infants have limited ability to autoregulate cerebral blood flow. D, the germinal matrix is highly vascular to support neuronal development by oligodendrocytes. Or E, answers C and D. Okay, so mm-hmm. um, yeah, so this question is tricky. Um, mm-hmm. A and B, I was it was easy enough for me to say that these were not the answer choices. So A says that birth trauma precipitates bleeding from the journal matrix. Um, I mean, um, this is not this is not true. Um, interventric- intraventricular hemorrhage occurs in preterm infant because of the of this germinal matrix that's that's supposed to eventually involute at thirty four weeks and is still present. Um, and, and, um, yeah, so, so this is not the, the mechanism by which babies develop intraventricular hemorrhage, the platelets being dysfunctional in preterm infants prompting the intraventricular hemorrhage is wrong too. Um, 
yeah, this is not the mechanism. I just knew that. However, the last two were tricky because mm-hmm. C says preterm infants have limited ability to autoregulate cerebral blood flow. That I know for a fact. I know, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we're so paranoid about these kids' blood pressure because mm-hmm. if their blood pressure tanks, like we know cerebral blood perfusion is going to be affected dramatically. So yes, I knew that C was correct. And then there was choice D that states that the germinal matrix is highly vascular which I was like, sure, there's like the germinal matrix, uh, the, the, those, the germinal matrix is a, a bunch of vessels to support neuronal development by oligodendrocyte. And it's like, as the added detail came on, I was like, I, I don't know anymore. And so I was unsure whether it was C, which I knew to be true, or E, which was C and D. Right. And in doubt, I did not select E. I said just C. I just said C because I knew C was for sure true and i had some reservation about choice d (sighs) well c is correct but so is d so (laughs) the answer is e c and d um so let's let's talk about that a little bit the germinal matrix just like you said has a rich vascular supply but the reason it is so rich in in vascularity is because that's where oligodendrocytes are produced um, they're the glial cells, which make myelin sheath, and they um, are most robust or their production is most robust between 23 and 32 weeks gestation. Um, and so you can imagine if you were going to be making a lot of things, you'd need a lot of blood supply in, in that area during that time period. And the vascular supply itself has really weak structural integrity because it doesn't last forever. Just like you said, it starts to involute after the 32nd week, and then it really ceases to exist by term gestation. And that's why intraventricular hemorrhage is not impossible, but is much less common in the term baby. And why these babies in the 23 to 32 weeks are um, most vulnerable because they have this um, weak um, hypervascular uh, germinal matrix because they're busy making oligodendrocytes. And then the germinal matrix itself isn't the only problem. The problem is that the babies cannot, um, like you said, autoregulate the cerebral blood flow. So when the systemic blood flow goes down, the, the, um, the cerebral blood flow can't compensate. And then when the, um, systemic blood flow acutely spikes with say, potentially, delivery or resuscitation or Uh a variety of other things that can cause a blood baby's blood pressure to go up. It's the, it's because the babies don't autoregulate like we do when our blood pressure spikes, when I'm mad (laughs) that somebody (laughs) didn't clean up the mess in the kitchen. I don't have, I don't usually stroke out because I can autoregulate. So I can, um, I can, mediate some of that spike in blood pressure that's going to the brain, but our little babies can't. And so these paired together is just the perfect combination for babies to bleed um, inside the ventricles. So interventricular hemorrhage is not felt to be secondary to birth trauma per se, though obviously um, fluctuations in blood pressure um, can can be associated. But we have babies with really traumatic births who have no bleeds, um, and we have babies with a with a birth history that is, that is not traumatic and that have catastrophic bleeds. 
And then while platelets in babies are hyporesponsive, um, they still work. Um, and so it's we can't blame it on the, the platelets being dysfunctional in preterm infants. A lot of our preterm babies have um, thrombocytopenia, um, which can also predispose to, to bleeding, um, but we know that happens at pretty significant levels of thrombocytopenia. So can't blame it on the platelets. Um, it's really this problem that the germinal matrix is so um, vascular, is so um, uh, sensitive, and that we can't, um, the babies can't regulate how much blood flow goes to that area. Okay. Yeah. And, it, it? And, it, and it's not, yeah. And it's not that birth trauma cannot cause bleeding, but it's right. usually not the most typical. I mean, you would have like subdural cephalohematoma, like, yeah, sure. traumatic birth can cause bleeding, but it's not usually, yeah. That, okay. All right, Daphne, one more question. Neurology question number 36. A term infant is observed to have an unusual skull shape. Further examination reveals bilateral coronal craniosynostosis. Who, who pronounced this correctly? <laughs> of the following. The most likely type of craniosynostosis is this infant in this infant is choice A brachycephaly, choice B dolicocephaly, choice C frontal plagiocephaly, choice D occipital plagiocephaly, and choice E trigonocephaly. Okay. This, I love craniosynostosis. So, um, so first you had to decide like what is going on here, right? So it says you have bilateral coronal craniosynostosis. And now everybody knows what corona means, right? Because it means crown, um, just like the coronavirus. Um, and so what happens is that the coronal um, sutures are the ones between the kind of parietal and temporal bones. And so uh, they're the ones in the front when you're looking, you know, face on uh, to the baby. And so if those fuse uh, bilaterally, then you get kind of flattening of the forehead. So then you have to say, what the heck is the term for basically flattening of the forehead? Um, and so... If you didn't know that that is brachycephaly, I think there's still a way that you can answer this question. So dolicocephaly is the like is like the cardinal feature of of being a of extreme preterm baby, unfortunately, in a lot of units. So that's when the be the head elongates kind of from front to back. Um, and, and unfortunately that happens a lot to our NICU babies because they spend a lot of time on one side and then on the other side and then on the other side. Um, and so they get, um, kind of positional flattening. Um, but you can also have dolicocephaly with closure of the sagittal sutures. Anyways, I'm sure you're going to tell us that. <laughs> the other important thing to know is what does plagiocephaly mean? So plagiocephaly means like oblique or um, slanted. So if you have frontal plagiocephaly on one side, that, that means that only one side is, is slanted. If you have occipital plagiocephaly on one side, that means that only one side of the occiput is slanted. And then trigonocephaly, I think, is the easiest one to remember. Um, that's where it's like triangular shaped at the, at the front of the head. So uh, A, brachycephaly, final answer. 
you stole my thunder. I had, no- I had nothing else to talk about. I'm sure you have something. My contribution to this discussion is going to be that plagiocephaly comes mm. from the Latin word plagi, which means beach, right? It's like like mm. a, like a beach, like like a beach is slanted, mm-hmm. and in, in Spanish, beach is playa. Playa, mm-hmm. yeah. muy so bien. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so that's that's where the slanted thing um, comes from. Anyway. No, that um, was a very good tip. There you go. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, the way I think of of cranial sutures mm. is that I imagine I'm at the bed of a resuscitation table, right? So you have the baby's head mm-hmm. in front of you, and you're looking at it uh, from the baby's top to uh, from head to toe. So you're looking down down on the baby, and the sutures are like a, a three by two table, right? Three rows, two columns. Okay. Mm. And the lines are your sutures. So in uh, the first the first suture, which is basically vertical, going from the forehead to the anterior fontanelle, is the metopic suture, right? Uh, and it's easy to remember because it's at the top. Mm-hmm. Metopic, top, metopic, top. And then um, when that happens, if you have um, craniosynostosis and it involves a metopic suture, then you have trigonocephaly because then like your forehead will look like a trigone, which is like a triangle. Um, and so that's easy to remember. Then is the, the two easiest sutures to remember, the, the coronal and the sagittal. So the coronal, like you said, like coronal crown in French, couronne is a crown. So like it's super easy to remember. And now we have coronavirus to help us remember that. But um, the coronal suture, um, early closure of the coronal suture will lead to um, bilaterally will lead to brachycephaly. Um, and um, that's happening in 13% of cases. And it's associated with Carpenter syndrome. Now, if you only have it on one side, then this is what we would call plagiocephaly. Because as we said, now mm-hmm. you're like slanted to one side or the other. And frontal plagiocephaly is associated with uh, Cruzon and Appert syndrome. Now, frontal plagiocephaly is a bit more frequent, and it's in 25% of cases of craniosynostosis. Then we have the sagittal suture, which is um, something we're familiar with. So that's the the longer suture, and it goes from the anterior fontanelle down to the posterior fontanelle, and it's basically vertical. And that will lead, early closure of the sagittal suture will lead to dolicocephaly. And like you said, this is the most uh, frequent one, and it's in 55% of cases. Um, and yeah, this is something that we see very commonly in the NICU. So now you've reached the, um, the posterior fontanelle and you have your last suture, which is now parallel to your coronal suture. And that's called the lemboid suture. The way I remember the lemboid suture is from football when they do the lembo leap, like they reach the end zone and they just leap over, uh, into the stand. So that's the lemboid suture. And if, uh, this is, uh, usually leading to occipital plagiocephaly where you have if closure of one or the other leads to like some slanting in the back of the head. So yeah, so these are the discussions on the different types of craniosynostosis. There's some possible medical etiologies to craniosynostosis. Low phosphorus is one of them. Hypercalcemia is another. We talked about Cruzon, Apert, and Ricketts obviously is another. Um, But yeah, that's really it. That sounds good. All right, see you guys tomorrow. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. 
If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.